probably in every country in Africa, if you're a bit privileged by your parents and have a private education, whatever, for some reason, you know, you're pushed almost to always go to Europe or to go to the US to discover those places. And it's really during my professional life that I discovered probably my favorite place in the whole world, which is the African continent, yes. you know, is being able to travel to all those countries and be able to actually discover all this art. So it's all this different, you know, journey that took me to create 154. I'm sure the art education and my father's influence was there, but it's also the ability, you know, to work in a company to, to develop businesses for them that made me realize that I could maybe create a different market, you know, for something completely, completely new. And definitely my, my time in Africa made me realize and very observant of, you know, the creativity that existed on the continent that was not crossing over, you know, to Europe or to the US. And this is basically where I started, you know, I would say lingering a bit around, you know, over weekends instead of coming back to London, you know, or waiting for a next meeting, you know, that was not coming up, you know, and stayed on the continent in different cities and really being curious about the art scenes locally, you know, and I think maybe it was also my 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 art education and my father's background, you know, that made me very curious about it. Welcome to Third Culture Africans, the lifestyle podcast for dreamers, thinkers, and doers. We celebrate artistry, share stories from those brave enough to create something and succeed, listen to diverse perspectives on African success, and those shifting the needle on culture. I'm Zezo Sal, your host. Welcome to another episode of Third Culture Africans. My guest this week is one of Forbes' 2016 African Most Powerful Women. She is a great example of what it looks like to create a vision-led business with no compromises. She's an astute businesswoman, an incredible soul, and she's the founder of the 154 Contemporary African Art Fair. Please help me welcome to the show, Toria Elgloui. Hi, Toria, and thank you for joining us on this episode of Third Culture Africans. Thank you, Zeze. Thank you for having me. I think with the podcast when I started, it was important for me to have guests that I not only knew, but also guests that I respected with what they've been able to do. I remember us meeting, I want to say in 2013 or 12. Exactly. At the beginning of it all. <laughs> yeah, 154 was literally a idea at the time. I remember us having, I think it was dinner at the George Club and you we're putting out this idea in terms of what you wanted to do. And at the time, it seemed in your mind, and I think, and in everyone else's mind, it seemed like a great project. But I don't think I would have imagined the magnitude or scale or size of 154 today, six years on. It's true that in 2013, we were close to launching, but it was a it was very clear in my mind what was very difficult was to transfer that idea to people when I was trying to explain, you know, how important it was and why the platform needed to exist. So in my head, you know, building 154 was, you know, a response to something that was not 
on the market and I knew, you know, this platform needed to exist. But since it had not done before, it was very difficult to see it, even for me to have it, you know, as a reality, you know, and just imagine how it turned out to be, you know, in three destinations. But it's true. 2013, you know, if I could tell you that... Um, it would have been in New York, in London, in Marrakesh. I mean, I would have not believed it myself. I don't think for me it was about not believing it. I think at the time, it was such a small space, African art or contemporary art, on in an accessible platform at scale, wasn't done. And I think it wasn't something that you had the vision, which was very clear, and you knew exactly what you wanted to achieve. And for you, it wasn't just about making money. It was very much about being able to curate these stories of these incredible artists from across the continent. And how you wanted to do that, I think, was the key. I think you had a very clear idea on how you wanted to execute 154. And I must say that, you know, you've successfully done that. Uh, yes, um, and it's uh, funny because we were saying just a bit before the, the beginning of the conversation of the different probably scenario that they imagined for 154. Where we are at today is definitely one that I'm really happy to be in, but I have not, you know, really think that would be, you know, where we were, you know. I thought that when we started the project in 2013, there was a chance that it could be a flop, even if my idea was great that, you know, the execution and the, the fact that the interest might not be there or the audience might not respond positively to the project. I feel like, you know, we were extremely lucky to have such a positive response, you know, from the first year to be able to double in size and, you know, expand to New York two years later and expand to Marrakech again two years after that. But I think also... I think the idea was in a way very bold and I think I continued to be bold, you know, with expanding because I really felt, you know, there was a need for it. And that that feeling of like thinking I was right was also, I don't know how to explain it, stronger than my uh, rational behavior, you know, thinking that we needed to be in those places. It was very important for contemporary African art to have a voice. You can come if you need to edit out. <laughs> Can I? Yeah, you can call. Okay. Let's go get edited out. <laughs> um, I have a habit of jumping into, I guess, the work because I feel like as entrepreneurs, we're most passionate about what we do as a start. And I find that it's a great way to just get you talking. And then we slowly ease into, I guess, the episode. So it, the episodes get edited into you know, the narrative, but I usually like to get in like the core bits, you know, what's okay. happening, how you've grown, etc. But with regards to 154 and what actually 154 is, you know, you say contemporary African art fair, yes. but it's a little bit more than that. Well, it is basically a platform that is responding to a lack of having contemporary African artists, you know, in the narrative of international contemporary art, or even, I would say, art history to be really much larger. And than consumer culture, right? Definitely. And I think that, you know, I was very proud to see on the, one of the articles that just passed on Artsy that we were part of the, the last decade movement in one way. But in a way, it is very... A proud moment to see that we've changed that decade by introducing contemporary African artists. It's very sad that it had to wait until 2010 to happen. But uh, the idea of uh, 
of having you know the possibility to give away to a really large number of artists who have like extremely talented professional you know path or journey you know that were not part of the international stage or part of the you know the global narrative on contemporary African art I think was very important if we're able to just help a bit in terms of changing that narrative I think 154 for me is a success I think you're being modest it is a success you run concurrently with Freeze yes in London and in New York insane well it is in a way the only way we could do it at the beginning you know because we didn't have a reputation or a name or didn't have the access to all those collectors that were buying contemporary African art or could buy contemporary African art because the idea was to create a market that was not yet there. Free seems to be for me one of this global, you know, art fair attracting 70,000 people that I knew I could leverage on in terms of getting their collectors to give a in a way, a bit of interest to what we were doing. And it worked really well in London. So I thought, you know, let's replicate, you know, the model in New York and do the same thing in parallel to Freeze New York. I think it was, you know, good bets in in general. Strategic or was it a bet? I think it was a good bet strategically in terms of like choosing those specific dates. And now I feel like with time, we're obviously competing with the time of those collectors, you know, as well. So they have so much things to do on their agenda that, you know, we, we have to be better every year, which is a very good challenge for us. But like to attract this collector base, you know, to come to us every year because they have different options, you know. So I think the difference with Marrakesh where there's nothing around us and where we are basically the only platform in February in a city that there's no other fairs, it's a whole different story. So all the collectors who are coming to see us are completely at our mercy and they're there for us exactly. So the feeling is a bit different. But um, uh, I think, you know, for big cities like London and New York and people being so busy, it was great to be able to, to, I would say, be part of a larger, you know, art week to make sure that, you know, we were part of this circuit and this narrative that was happening at those moments in time, you know, in those two cities. Before we continue to move forward, I think we're all very much informed by where we come from. And I know that, you know, you've recently lost your dad. So this is hopefully not going to be so emotional, you know, trying to sort of dial you back into younger Toria and his influence in your life and your family. And what I found quite interesting, you know, reading into for the, for the episode you know, knowing that you're the daughter of an artist and so your love for art would have probably been born from him and you're also a daughter of a model. So, you know, both your parents are quite creative in the sense that they they had skills or talents in, in, in the art world. But finding out that your grandfather wasn't particularly keen on your dad becoming an artist. Yes, so it's very funny, this whole story. You have to put back my grandfather in a context where he had a political position in Morocco. And As he, he was the Pasha? Of yeah, he was the Pasha of Marrakesh. And it had a bit of a different, probably, connotation than now because, you know, Marrakesh and Morocco uh, in his period of time was very tr- tribal. And traditional. He was, like a, he was like the chief, right? The king he of was the, the chief. He was the chief of the South, you yeah. know, so I don't know how to put it <laughs> yeah. in any other way. But uh, he had, you know, kind 
kind of like won several wars and several things, you know, to... Quite renowned. To unify the south of Morocco. So he had the position of a pasha, but meant that, you know, the whole south was responding to him. And to be fair to him, he didn't know any other Moroccan artists who had made a career, you know, out of uh, of uh, that profession. So having my father uh, being so, so passionate about painting, you know, was quite new and maybe it came with the first generation of teachers, you know, coming to Morocco to teach, you know, the young generation of Moroccans and my father always talk about this teacher when he was seven year old, you know, who taught him, you know, the basic of drawing and how that, you know, first, you know, openness to art was important to him. I mean, for us, it was still important because as you know, in Africa, this, they, I mean, we grew up in a continent where there was not a lot of structure for art. No. Um, but we or, see it everywhere. The crazy thing is there isn't the structure, but it's such a core part of our daily lives, of our heritage. The teapots you drink out of are beautiful pieces, the tapestry, the furniture. For sure, but in terms of art education, as I'll say, it's it's a bit insane that it didn't exist. But the reality is that I think if I had not been the daughter of an artist, this art education would have not been transmitted at that time, you know. Very true. So I think... Basically, I would say that my first taste in art, you know, came from my father, definitely through his art, but through also dragging us to museum when we would be abroad, you know, and trying to him catch up on all the things he was missing in Morocco, you know, for his, uh, for his own inspiration, you know. So I think that really played a role in probably, you know, giving me a, a love for the arts in general, but I never thought it was a professional you know, career. I thought it was a real passion and that was basically it. But that Can never you imagine that. telling your granddad that you would now like to, you want to create 154? Can you imagine him in the same time before your dad's success came in? Yeah. Having the conversation saying, hey, granddad, so I think. <laughs> I don't think it would have gone really well, but because my dad was there first, maybe it would have been like, you know. The, a softer landing. Maybe. Yeah. He would have been like, what to expect from my dad already wanting to, to, to study art so hard. I have no idea what he would have thought. You know, he was also a very traditional man, you know, so me as a woman also would have had another debate to go through with, uh, with him. Yeah, But I know that, you know, the fight was long and uh, definitely I was really impressed by my dad. It's like he he had daughters who, not me, but my other sisters are quite creative as yeah. well. And he was very against them studying art as well. That's interesting. Which is very interesting because he fought so much to go. You would, I think he would yeah. have been with a more open mind. But do you think that's because he felt like it was a hard journey for him and didn't for want sure. to For sure. And he said it. He said it's a very hard journey. It was a very hard journey for him as a... I mean, I don't think it was a gender thing, but he said as a man, you know, to support yourself. He's like, you know, I want you to have some kind of like basic, you know, education that would let you support yourself, you know, without uh, trying to be an artist. And so he pushed us to do studies that were completely probably not fit to what we really wanted to do. This podcast is sponsored by Malay Natural Science. Malay's products are inspired by the rich landscapes, alluring scents, and ancient wisdom of Africa. Their luxurious fragrance and body care range balances 100% natural active ingredients and scientifically proven formulas to heal, protect, and pamper your skin. Malay ships worldwide, and you can buy their products at maleeonline.com. They also offer a free sample if you'd like to try. I feel like that you bring that same empathy into the gallery representation at 154. 
especially in the early days, you would speak so much about being passionate about helping the smaller galleries. Yes. So it's funny because we had this workshop on all 54 and, you know, what was at the beginning and obviously with the reputation and, you know, the, the, the role we're trying to take, you know, in this art world, we, we do have to develop into also a commercial platform. So because this is our main core business, you know, but it's true that I think the role of uh, such a platform is to give, you know, light to a lot of younger emerging, you know, galleries who have just started and we're trying to do it, but in different format. It's not as easy anymore as it is uh, from the beginning of, uh, of 2013. For the unique reason is that the galleries on the continent are becoming more and more professional as well. Even if they're small, they have like a real tendency to know all about, you know, being a gallery already and what they should do and their budget and things like that. So it's very useful for us. But at the same time, now we have to be very strict on quality, you know, in a way yeah. to, 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 to pursue, you know, what we are about. It's like we have to make a real criteria that, you know, what will be shown at 154 will be, you know, the, the best of what we can show regarding our continent. But I feel like it's just being present in the marketplace, right? It's saying we are of the same standard as, say, a freeze. Exactly. Because we run at the same time. Exactly. And, and why think, should our rules be any different? Yeah. It's funny because I think people, because it's Africa, I don't know, but seven years ago, they were really expecting us to play this role that this was a bit of a non-for-profit uh, educational. Oh, I, remember, I remember having conversations with you and the frustration around that. <laughs> yeah, but like they are like having people wanting a festival or some kind of a cultural event regarding Africa where they would learn about Which the is continent. a bit gimmicky, right? It is gimmicky and I feel like it is to the people who are not part of the African continent to start thinking of Africa as a completely different space than you know what they had. And in the same way they would study the education and history of other parts of the world, I think the continent deserves the same level of respect. Completely. And I have to say, I've seen a lot, a lot of changes, a lot of programs from the art education system, you know, now including African, you know, models, you know, to their, uh, to their art history program. I've seen a lot of students, you know, coming from all different backgrounds, you know, uh, wanting to do their thesis on contemporary African art. So there's definitely a strong interest from the new generation. And they probably don't see it as a separate, you know, entity or something they have not seen. So I think that this, it is a movement that have started and we'll see, you know, probably less of a, you know, of an unbalance, I'll say, in terms of the, the art history and the inclusion of all those contemporary African artists in the next probably decade, I hope. <laughs> I think the platform does a great job of curating the continent stories and you do a great job of curating a, a great picture of those stories coming out of every corner almost of Africa at the moment. But to delve into the inspiration, you know, we've talked about being, you know, the daughter of an artist and your dad being one of the first really successful African artists um, to come out of the continent and then going into deciding 154 post a career in corporate world. You know, you studied in America Yes. So, hence your French American. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't realize if I have a still an American accent, that I might have a it, more it American. It kicks out some, the, now and again with something British. to do, especially when you do talks, it comes out. Okay. And I'm like, go, Toria. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, 
having worked in in telco because your I feel like your entry back into the ecosystem of Africa and I think this seems to be a running thread and especially with me that's what happened I moved to South Africa I arrived in country and saw I saw the gaps I saw what was lacking I saw that here we are in this beautiful place and no one's appreciating what's around us and in a similar way going back to Morocco to work for I think it was Siemens at the Cisco it was exactly it was Cisco I had the chance to, it was really my first experience into you know having to cover Middle East and Africa and what it meant it was like going and traveling a lot in Africa to sell different infrastructure solutions so it was really my discovery of Africa Stop. as a continent geek alert <laughs> you were selling infrastructure for Cisco systems in Africa. Yes, I was, but I had like to be honest a regional role. There was some techies, you know, with me to to ensure that I was not, you know, overselling or and things so in I a previous not... life you were a consultant, management consultant. What was your previous So basically career? I started as a finance major and I worked I think my first job was in an oil company if you want to know everything yes. but it was a very entry level position and that was between my my bachelor and my MBA yeah. and I was like okay oh my god if I can only get to that level with my bachelor I have to go back and do an MBA because yes. I couldn't take the the level of responsibility And this is all in in the US That was in New York yes mm-hmm. and then so I went back for an MBA in international business and strategic uh, development and uh, my second job was in finance as well so I did one year and a half when I was studying my MBA uh, at night in a brokerage firm so I mean the idea that I had a bachelor in finance I don't know led me to that that opportunity not that I liked it but it helped me took all my exams for finance and in America to be able to deal in all the finance like here you have like a bunch of uh, license you know exams you have to have and then I wanted to move up, in, I guess, in the finance, you know, corporate world in, and move into a new company uh, that had a bigger reputation. And I went to Private Wealth for Salmon Smith Barney, which I don't think exists anymore. And then, you know, as every African, we have visa issues, so yes. they couldn't yes. uh, renew my visa for some reason. And I think I, we were like starting the crisis in 2001, you know, that hit the, the internet and, you know, there was a lot of people being let go. So, I mean, their excuse that they couldn't renew my uh, my working visa. Yes. So I had to change and like try to find another opportunity in Europe where I could work. And this is how I ended up in a telecom fund who basically was covering, you know, different emerging markets. Africa was one of them, but was more North Africa. And they had bought a company, you know, in Morocco that they wanted me to go, you know, help manage. So I was between London and Morocco quite a lot. So you now become an infamous repat African. I know, I know. So they sent me back, but which was quite an interesting move. I remember as a woman in Morocco, I never thought, uh, you know, that would happen, but we acquired the company and they, they, they put me a bit more senior than the people, you know, we had there. And it caused a lot of trouble as me being a young woman, you know, yeah. managing older Moroccan men. men. Yeah. But, you know, it was a very good experience for me to understand if I wanted to go back to Morocco and have a professional career 
that meant working for someone else, you know, mm -hmm. not... Uh, so it was quite interesting. And then for some reason, this telecom fund did not work out as well as, uh, you know, it was expected. It had a lot of hope, but it went a bit, um, it went a bit crushing down, mm -hmm. I'll say. I switched and I moved to, to Cisco System. And uh, this was for business development, you know, position. And it was to, you know, kind of help them develop some of the countries where they were not, you know, mm. in Middle East and Africa. So originally it was Middle East and Africa. And obviously when the two geographies became big enough, they separated them and I moved to the African, uh, you know, geography. And it was very interesting because for me, it was really the time where I discovered, you know, the continent back and forth. And it's funny because probably in every country in Africa, I feel a bit privileged by your parents and have a private education whatever for some reason you know you're pushed almost to always go to Europe or to go to the US to discover those places and it's really during my professional life that I discovered probably my favorite place in the whole world which is the African continent yes. you know as being able to travel to all those countries and be able to actually discover all this art so it's all this different you know journey that took me to create 154 I'm sure the art education and my father influence was there but it's also the ability you know to work in a company to, to develop businesses for them that made me realize that I could maybe create a different market you know for something completely completely new and definitely my my time in Africa made me realize and very observant of you know the creativity that existed on the continent that was not crossing over you know to Europe or to the US and this is basically where I started you know I would say lingering a bit around, you know, over weekends instead of coming back to London, you know, or waiting for a next meeting, you know, that was not coming up, you know, and stayed on the continent in different cities and really being curious about the art scenes locally, you know, and I think maybe it was also my 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 art education and my father's background, you know, that made me very curious about it. But I definitely uh, had my first, I guess, crush, art crush uh, during my Cisco journey you know oh, wow. in terms of like going there like discovering art buying art coming to London you know having no no view of what was going on or what I had seen in Africa where I was living you know so I didn't really understand how those artists could be so good and not you know have a presence you know in the international market and in parallel to that this is another little you know drop that happened you know that maybe you know really maybe give me another push to choosing to launch 154 is i was working on my father's um catalogue raisonné which is a bit of a lifetime project but it's kind of like regrouping all mm. the work that your your an, an artist did in general and and this was the the project with Leighton House So this was, uh, this is an ongoing project, by the way, it's not finished, but it's, you know, I was working on that and like putting an exhibition on my father's work between his work and Winston Churchill in London. And this helped me in many ways, you know, getting access to the art world and really having a, a glimpse of what it meant to work, you know, or have relation in London in the art world and how well I could do or not do. So when this idea started, you know, getting into my head that we should do a platform for contemporary African artists, I had also this experience in London with my father's work and doing an exhibition in a museum that really I really enjoyed and I was like okay maybe this this is not such a bad art in, you know industry to work in 
and there might be more work to do in terms of understanding, you know, if there's a business model that would work, you know, to do that. And if it existed, because I had no idea if, you know, such platform existed so, already. I think very few people on the outside see that some of these things are usually just ideas. And it's usually a question, oh, what if? You know, um, and then you go ferreting away at this idea that ends up becoming something. And that seems to be a common thread in each episode with everyone, because everyone asks the question, why not? Mm. Or what if we did it this way? Or why isn't you just meant, you know, why aren't these artists being recognized? Like, and there's something in it about, you know, because everyone's understanding, especially the narrative of entrepreneurism or entrepreneurial ventures at the moment in our conscious culture is very much about, hey, have a strategy, think about a problem, do all these different things. And your job with 154 now is not just a job. And our responsibility as African entrepreneurs pushes us beyond the scope of a job or making money. The responsibility of carrying at the moment, the continent's visual stories to the rest of the world. I don't know if you've ever contextualized what 154 is in our ecosystem. So listen, I do, and I think it's important, and I really feel like we have a responsibility of educating at the same time as we are, you know, providing this commercial platform in other business and other art fairs in the world. Maybe their first objective is to make money, you know, and do a business that actually is profitable and that work and they have maybe one objective. It's like, you know, how do you, you make your fair relevant and invite all those galleries and, you know, have a revenue from it. Um, with the continent, it's definitely give us a whole different set of responsibility and weight because for the only reason that platform for a lot of those artists was going to be the first time they would be exhibited internationally. Mm. It has also been the first time they, they had something published about them, you know, or a catalog telling yeah. their biography or things like that. So we had to do all those elements surrounding the fair with the, this education at the same time as, you know, we are a commercial platform to the point where we often have to remind people that it's first a commercial platform yeah, and then it's a not-for-profit or educational, yeah. you know, yeah. program at the same time. But I remember the Kickstarter for the catalogue. We had a terrible year. <laughs> I remember the Kickstarter. I remember the printer. I remember. Uh, oh, we had like a lot, a lot of stories. I think what you have to remember is like when you're an entrepreneur, you go into those things very blindly. You can be prepared with the business if model. If someone told you, would you do it? Sorry? If someone told you the outcome, you wouldn't you do it. You probably would do it. No, you're, you probably would have different thoughts about it, but you wouldn't do <laughs> You'd be do like, it. maybe not this no, thing. not this thing, yeah. And the Kickstarter was one of them. You know, we had a terrible year and it was about getting a terrible year and raising sponsorship. Yeah, I remember but, one time you, you kind of said to me, oh my God, so all I'm doing is trying to raise money. Yes, yes. And to be honest, believe it or not, you would think that after seven years it becomes easier. It's still the same scenario 
portfolio about you know raising sponsorship every every edition or every year i would say of the fair you come from hero to zero you have to start it from scratch and a lot of it you know comes to the fact that you know we are a very specialized art fair we are you know specializing in africa so some of our partners of african as well some of our partners don't care about art some of the partners care about africa but not about art we have all those mixtures of people you know that makes us a bit different than i guess very international event where you have a larger pool also to to knock on doors too you know i think that the fact that we're very focused on africa i think in many ways we are dealing with people either who have investment in africa might be interested into investing or getting visibility or african who have or should have some kind of like in a way responsibility in wanting to support you know an african event but unfortunately it's not straightforward you never know? is it's i never think your is. earlier investors if i remember right were from the middle east Yes, to be fair, my first bank sponsor was a Moroccan bank, but they sponsored me as an entrepreneur, not as an art, you know, event. They yes. wanted to give me seed money for, you know, an entrepreneurial idea. Yeah. And then second year, which was a terrible year because I didn't know if I was going to get sponsorship until the last minute and this is why we did the Kickstarter yeah. because we didn't want to stop doing the catalog, which was really a really big cost for a startup, you know, without really any return for 154. And it was but like it was such a <laughs> such a journey no one knows how much printing costs a catalog yes so the, the the printing catalog is very expensive and thank god we could we're going into a digital world because like just for the catalog we had to find i think 12,000 pounds wow for not so many catalogs now we're talking 1,000 yeah. catalogs so i mean i know that it doesn't sound such a astronomic now. figure but when you're an entrepreneur it is 12,000 know. yes 12,000 is a lot of money it's a lot of money this is what I'm saying even we, 50 pounds is a lot of money it is like it some is. months you get to like that 50 pound difference oh, yeah it really stings and I'm telling you this was something that you give to the VIP yes that are not often bought you no. know from you so it's really a giveaway you know like that. 12,000 pounds here you go yeah here you go and I'm like uh. <laughs> but anyway we, we managed to get uh, that kickstarter going but it was painful to have to get, to go there I don't know it was like almost like you know you know I thought that the first year was successful so the second year was you know gonna be easier so that you know that realization that you still needed to raise money and sometimes even go to Kickstarter to raise, you know, twelve thousand pounds because yes. you didn't have them. They even look good. It even look good for the galleries to know we're in that type of trouble. I think, you know? from an entrepreneurial standpoint, on my part, I thought that was another bold move of yours. I well, thought it was incredibly bold to kind of step out of the space and go, "Hey, you know, you might think that I'm this big shot, but..." I need to print my brochures. I remember the email that came around, which was help us print our brochures. Yeah, yeah, the catalog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We, we, we targeted catalog, everyone yeah. we knew. Mm-hmm. And I mean, honestly, like the bid on the, that, uh, you know, exercise where it's sometimes very slow, it went 10, 10 pounds to 50 pounds to 30 yeah. pounds, but at the end of the day, uh, it worked. And you were searching for printers everywhere, Portugal, everywhere. <laughs> so we learned as well, because the two first year we printed in London, which is crazy. 
And we had a designer in London who helped us develop our brand image, which was very important because at the end, this is something that, you know, people remember. And when I think about it now, this investment was not for nothing. We still use our logo. It's still relevant. I think that's a key thing. A lot of people forget that. Um, yeah, you try to go for the, the cheap option in many ways because this is also the only sometimes, you know, solution you have. But at the end of the day, I remember having this budget from this bank, which was a small sponsoring budget. It was £50,000. Uh, but this is the only seed money I had, you know, like you have to remember that it was that, that and was that's it. it. So when it came to basically sharing this between the PR, you know, doing your brand identity, yes. I think I chose to put the maximum in the brand. brand. I did the same. Yeah. I literally spent every single thing I had on the brand identity. And then I had to raise the money to actually even make the products in the end. It was like, I was like, you had oh a name God. and you had a brand. Literally, I had a brand. But I think at the time, the, the foresight to be able to invest in that, and I didn't know how far it would take you. And I think in the beginning, you don't know. But I think the foresight, looking at 154's branding now and how distinctive that is, and when it's time for 154 in, in, the, in the year's calendar, and seeing the posters, or even going to Marrakesh and seeing the posters, there's something warming about that because that investment is lifelong. I remember my first office that I ever rented in London, and it was from the guy who had designed the Schweppes logo. Yes. <laughs> and in the olden days, they didn't, he was, I wouldn't say smart enough not to take a one off fee for the logo. So every time Schweppes print a bottle, a can, he gets paid. Amazing. And I remember meeting this guy. And I think from that meeting is when the branding idea stuck to me, which was, I need to own my logo. I need to own my IP in whatever way that I can. And I think the same with your approach with 154. And I guess, did that come from having your background career-wise or having your dad and having an artist and, and seeing sometimes the struggles that artists go through with people essentially ripping off their work. Mm. So I think, you know, one thing I think I did right early at the beginning, definitely not raising money, right, <laughs> enough money, but uh, it was to surround myself with a good advisory board. And I think that was very important because there was a mixture of people, you know, people who have been in business, all type of businesses for years, but there was, and had the wisdom of the old age, you know, and you had also people in the art world, but in different part of the art world. And I think it was, you know, when we had those first meetings of like, you know, this is where we are, you know, what I'm going to do with this, etc., that we all agreed that, you know, branding was important. And I remember I had the first idea to go into a logo context with like a younger designers, you know, who could do for much cheaper, you know, the logo. But, you know, I had also people in this board telling me, no, 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 you know, like if you're going to have a logo, you know, just think about it, think that maybe everything goes later but your brand stays and it's an exorbitant cost considering you hadn't even sold the ticket that's exactly it and i mean to be honest like it was very nice to hear from all those advisory people but they were not in my shoes no, every day with fifty thousand pounds and <laughs> i know i know and like being struggling and things and not seeing how i'm going to pay my you know part-time employees and things so there was like a lot of calculation that for them was very easy to make but yeah. for me to leave them huge every day were, were much much difficult yeah. But to be honest, now with a bit of you know of, of time, they were right. 
but you know they could have tell me you know maybe have a great designer but not from London yeah you know, trying to do it somewhere but I feel else. like these are the school fees we pay in this journey like there are things where if you go back to yourself in 2013 and your 2013 self says hey Toria so I'm gonna do it this way you'll be like don't you dare a hundred percent. Even like, you know, expenses we let ourselves have, not having, you know, different estimate, but mistakes of, I guess, entrepreneurs, you know, like I always remember going in New York, you know, not knowing the landscape, you know, yeah. in New York. So like the people building your walls, you know, the architects yeah. and everybody was trying to get a piece of you. You don't know it, but like, you know. And they all need it. And you need these things. They're selling you stuff they're constantly. You're selling the stuff, but because you're also in some kind of a rush because you don't have the time. And you're to, desperate. To, to, to really do research or have the best, you know, estimates in front of you. You make like wrong choices of like... But cost. do you find that you're also not bold enough to actually... In the beginning, I certainly wasn't bold enough to go, actually, no, thank you, I don't need you. Well... The problem with a, a production event like we are building is like we often rushed with time, you know, like so mm. it's all about getting things done at a certain deadline. And unfortunately, this is what made us make mistakes. You know, mm. if we had more time in some cases, we would have been, you know, much more rational about our choices sometimes, mm. you know, and maybe more due diligent in terms of, you know, the people we chose to work with, etc. We realized it really fast, but the following year, you know, when we got other estimates and yes. we what we paid you know three times what we're supposed to pay this is ridiculous you know and the people wanted to still work with us and we had to show them the other estimate I was like was that a joke are you, you know? kidding me like yeah. what is this and, and they, they, they you know it's funny because like confidence in those situations helped they didn't budge in terms of like you yeah. know we'll give you a huge discount to continue to it's work it's like the disparity between quotes sometimes you find it insane it's crazy it's like you can for the same job you can get anything from like 80 pounds to two two thousand five. I, know, I, I really don't understand it. You know, it's like almost almost unfair. But at the same time, if some people like us at the first year were willing to go for the the, the highest estimate, yeah. you know, why not? You know, they might Very be uh, they might need less clients. You know. So so while all this is happening, um, you make Forbes 2016 African or oh, Africa's most powerful women list. Yes. Do you remember that list coming out and exactly where you are in business? Because sometimes the thing about press and, and we were talking earlier about, you know, press and, and what comes with the articles and speaking at TED, the reality of the day to day, especially when those articles come out, for me, the timing is really odd because I'm not at the high when the article comes out. Was so it the same to be with you? fair, there's a bit of knowledge. I mean, I would like to know. I'll be like all surprised. The, the one, the one thing that surprised me is something that happened very early on two weeks ago. But those, uh, you know, listing one way or the other, you know, the people asking you a lot of questions, one a biography, you know, they tell you exactly why is it for. You're not always sure about the timing of it, but you kind of know it's going to come out. So yeah. it's just you kind of forgot about it. And then it's kind of a good news. But you're right. There's definitely... It really feels like a parallel universe where you get, you know, all those accolades and then you're like still in your struggling of yes. every day as, you, <laughs> as an entrepreneur. So maybe the first time around, you're kind of proud. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, you send it to all your friends. Yes, and you're like so excited and you're like, oh, I'm like, and then you're like, hmm. What does it actually you bring mean? me? <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's and like then, sometimes you get those emails about, please, would love to do an article about you. 
And there's a part of me that wants to go, yes, I'd love an article, but why am I going to waste my time answering these questions? Yes, and sometimes, you know, you had the art also journalist asking you to a lot of questions and then you see the article and you have one line, yeah. you know, like one quote. Yeah, and, and you probably spent like a good hour to, to try to answer that question, yes. But I think, you know, in a way, somebody told me to look at it a different way, said like, it's better that you have positive press than negative press Very you know, true. or no press at all Very true. Uh, so in a way I should be grateful but there are times where there's no press right Yes, to be honest, I think press helped us in many ways in mm. getting credibility, in giving us a bit of gravitas, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of our reputation. So we needed it. And I mean, to be honest, those accolades for me were extremely helpful to be able to be called to give a voice to artists from the continent. Mm-hmm. So that's what it helped me do personally is be called for conferences, you know, be called for this, for that. And I mean, I've realized when I turned down some opportunities because at the end you can't do them all, yeah. is that in those panels there's no African voices, you yeah. know. So it's also when you were talking about responsibility, sometimes yeah. like I'm exhausted that, you know, but it's an important art panel. And I know if I'm not going, this topic is not going to even be part of the, the conversation. So you you have to make an effort and go. But I think all this press, I guess, in a way, visibility and uh, for your brand and for what you do is very good. It's very good if you're allowed to, you know, uh, fulfill some kind of mission with it. And yeah. I think, you know, Ted came out probably from, you know, one of those uh, articles, you know, as well. Somebody saw the article, somebody, you know, tried to, Down, to understand yeah. more about uh, 154. I always say purposeful work. I think we and especially 154 is purposeful work Um, for sure yeah it's a good expression (laughs) yeah and it seems to be the running thread actually with every guest that we're all doing purposeful work Mm -hmm. and creating conversation in a space that otherwise were overlooked or otherwise not the level of attention is being paid and I think through 154 you have been able to create an income stream for a lot of people there are young people believe now that they can have art as a career from our part of the world, which is incredible. I remember as a child, the idea of an artist was they were struggling and they were poor. And, you know, to sell their work, they would have to, you know, haggle, you know, you'd see people haggling to sell work. And you've been able to create a platform that allows them to understand that they can be sold in Sotheby's or Christie's. And, mm-hmm. and alongside Freeze and have collectors who appreciate their work from all around the world. Uh, I definitely think and I hope, you know, we have this impact, you know, and that a lot of artists, you know, sometimes we go, it's artists we didn't even had a chance to present yet, you know, at 154 because they're younger, because they don't have representation yet, but they've heard about 154, you know, as their journey or their goal or, you know, where they are aiming, you know, to be. And I mean, so this we're definitely very, very proud uh, we need, you know, more structure on the continent, you know, as yeah. well. And this is like definitely something that I will reiterate every time I can, because there's a lot of work to be done, mm. you know, there. And um, I almost want to say now that, you know, coming to 154, it's almost the end of your journey. You know, you have yeah. so much step to struggle with, you know, before getting, you know, to a gallery that will see your work, you know, and then come to 154 and have the means to do 154. So I want to say that, you know, you know, 
the spaces, the, the support, the curators, you know, uh, all this is like an ecosystem that is really well developed outside the African continent that we all need to, to put a lot of efforts in doing the same thing, you know, on the continent. Not automatically the same, you know, models because we don't have to repeat, you know, things that don't work for, you know, the different countries. So, for example, I'm not for, you know, museum in every city or in every country, not at least the old model of the museums because I think in some cases... It, there's no point of it. People are not used to go to museum, you yeah. know. So I think that you know I would prefer you know different art centers that bring all the creative communities together. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, would be much more useful. And which is more akin to our way of life, right? Yes, and I think that um, and it's a bit of our problem. Us as African is like always like trying to look up and trying to copy models that already exist, you know, where we have to develop our own models. And this is also, I think, what I would, you know, try to um, encourage people to do is, like, try to find models that works for you. Uh, and the continent, unfortunately, has models that need to work for it because we usually don't have the capital, we don't have the, the structure, we have a lot of talent, you know, it's how do you bring all those talent, you know, as much you elevate all those talents. Yeah. So the idea of a young artist who might listen to this episode, photographer, artist, who has 154 as a goal, your advice is find a gallery, get seen. What's your advice for that person? So my first advice <laughs> is please get as much information that you can on what you're trying to do because I receive a lot of emails from artists from, you know, different players in the art industry on the continent. And sometimes, you know, the emails are at 154. So they obviously got to go to the website, got my email, you know, got, you know, the info email, but they obviously did not get what we are about, you know. So sometimes, you know, you receive, you know, really... Uh, look at my work, you know, or something like that, which is fine, you know, and very daring and bold. But yeah. like, you know, if I would receive an email, you know, differently narrated, you know, that is more engaging, even if it's not our job, but the work was really good, presented in a really good way and explaining, you know, some kind of a, an idea of what they were trying to achieve with their work, I would definitely look at it more. But like, I would say the first most important step for anybody in the art world is get as much information as you can on what you can do, what is available to you. And I'm saying that because nowadays there's a lot of residency for artists all over the world that could, you know, welcome African artists. Yes. But if you don't do your own research, nobody's going to do it for you, yeah. you know. So the yeah. first step is definitely do your own research because this is very, very important. So, so if you have access to your phone, which most of Africans do, you know, with a bit of internet, it's something that, you know, you could do. The next step is definitely galleries are hard to find. Mm -hmm. They're not an easy community on, in Africa, you know, so I would say use your social media because a lot of artists have been discovered on social media, you know, yeah. have a wonderful Facebook page, an amazing Instagram, you know, share your work, try to, you know, target and tag people that might be of interest, you mm -hmm. know, also understand the galleries and the work and the list of artists they have because sometimes it's all about the fit, you know, it's yes. not about trying to target all your galleries yeah. it's like targeting the one that you know 
represent artists that are similar to you that you know they have the same theme or the same ambition that mm. you know you have and I feel like if I was a young artist today I would definitely try to use all the resources that is available to me yeah. and residency is the first step just because you can meet curators directors you know other artists there that will share their experience share their you know the next step you know of their career and you know how they did it and share yeah. their experience And you touched on this, but African woman, 40s, single, running 154. When are you finding a husband? <laughs> this is like a like very African means, question. You know, I, I should like, introduce you to my aunt. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a narrative, and I find a lot as female entrepreneurs, if you're not in a marriage or in a relationship that is out there or publicly known at home you're getting these sorts of questions and then it's oh, you know the question of don't get too big so that you don't find a husband <laughs> you know and then you, you get those bits and and I think we're now a new generation of women who are doing it slightly differently We are, you know, to be honest, like partnership and partners, you know, could be a very good help in an entrepreneur, Huge. you know, career and support system, you know, as well. I didn't have that, not by choice, you know, like you have to meet the right person in general, but I think it gave me maybe the courage to be more bold, you know, mm -hmm. in my choices, to be able also to concentrate and maybe give my all to, yeah. to the project rather than, you know, having a family to take care of. I mean, I'm very admirative of, you know, all the women like you, you know, have a family. Family, uh, and it's insanity by the way yeah it, it is but like <laughs> I mean she might be one of your first you know uh, your biggest fan you know as soon as she'll understand how hard it has been for you to have her and yeah. like you know sharing your desk yes. you know, at the same yeah. time she has a, a mini podcast episode that she recorded the other day it was quite hilarious and she was like and I think though in our African perspective and the reason why I bring that up is because a lot of the time people see women at the forefront of a business and assume that there has to be a man or there is, you know, privilege from your background. And it's helpful, I think, for people to understand that sometimes, regardless of that privilege, you started with £50,000, which was a grant from a bank, which you had to apply for, which you had to fill out forms for, which you had to compete for it in, in essence. And I think... Sometimes it's an excuse that's being used by women and our peers that actually I can't do it because, and you're a great example that you can do it and it is possible and you can do it at scale, you know, have one of the biggest or the biggest African art fair in Europe, North America, New York, and now Marrakesh. Yeah. What do you want me to say? I think it's also a personality. There's people who are, you know, more into a proscrination. How do you say? Maybe I'll use another name because I don't know how to pronounce this one. <laughs> But, you know, they're more about thinking what they could have done, done or yeah. not done. Or there's some people who are much more comfortable with risk yes. than others. Yeah. I mean, this is, I think, a, a real personality character trait rather yeah. than, you know. But were you conscious of the risk? 
Of course, I was conscious of the risk. And to be fair, I think we talked about it before. I thought that journey was very lonely, you know, the two it's years, incredibly lonely. you know, to, to, to launch the yeah. fair because you really believe in something, but there's no reference to it. Mm -hmm. And there's no, nobody bouncing ideas with you, you know, about what you want to do. And, uh, and you think you're right. But like, at the same time, people are thinking, you know, you're very ambitious. You're, you're, what you're, are you doing? Who's going to yeah, turn up? Yeah. Who's going to be audience? You know, yeah. you're sure there's a market that give you already you have all those doubts to be honest somewhere inside and then having someone echo that sometimes echo that all day long so I mean if I could do differently you know I might have not done what I've done but I would think that it's easier with a partner because you're not two to believe in something than alone you know like, but we've also seen bad partnerships you, you, uh, yeah a good partner is important yeah. maybe somebody you think with the idea or something yeah. so you're both committed to the same goal you know so just so that journey is a bit less yes. you know Yeah, and I feel like if I could change, you know, how I did it, I would have loved to have company in that, you know, Agreed. lonely journey, you know, at the beginning. Hopefully, Third Culture Africans gives someone in that lonely space a companionship with our voices and also the ability to know that what they're experiencing is not unique. Exactly. Um, so that's a very good idea because, I mean, I wish I could have heard all those stories, you know, before starting. So if this is giving you the possibility to to read, and I love that. I love to read, you know, biographies on people I admire. This yeah. is one of my favorite things yeah. and probably my, my favorite topics of books, you know, mm -hmm. is like reading, you know, incredible stories yeah. of people, you know, I've seen on are admired for a long time. And I think that... In a way, the podcast is like, you know, the new you this know, books yeah. in many ways. You know? That's my, I'm hoping that this allows anyone who's interested in the art space, um, who wants to build things, gives you the opportunity or gives them the opportunity to be able to hear your story, hear your journey. There's one thing I do do on every episode, though, which is have each guest say their name properly. Because as a third culture kid, we all have versions of our names that is not our name. So how do we say your name properly? So in my household, yes. it's Touria El Glaoui. Okay. And to the rest of the world, yeah, Touria El Glaoui. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, I have a lot of Toria or Victoria yeah. sometimes because yeah. I don't know, like it sounds a bit the same. Uh, in Arabic, it's Thereya, so I'm also like called Thereya in, ah. in Morocco, you know, like oh. by the, I guess, the I Moroccan administration. Yes. The, but I had a French mother, so she didn't know how to pronounce this in Arabic. So it became Touria, and this is how at home I'm called, you know, so. Well, Toria, thank you so much for coming on this episode of Third Culture Africans. I've been smiling so much throughout the episode. My cheeks are sore, but I've absolutely enjoyed sitting with you. Well, thank you. Um, can you tell our listeners how they can find you, how they can experience 154, and so they can visually understand what we've just talked about? Yes, so definitely the website. So it's www.1-54.com and Google 154. There's a lot of videos, interviews, you know, of the fair itself. And if you're physically in Marrakech in February, so it's from the 20th to the 23rd of February, 
and uh, later on in May in New York and then in October uh, 2020 in London. But all the dates on the website, you know, all our, you know, programs are there, all our past archive are there. I heard that we don't have a very clean website these days and it's not sustainable because we're keeping all the archives, you know, for everyone to yeah. be able to refer to them, you know, but when they want to. But that's a great experience for someone who just discovers 154 and a great education. And if they turn up, they'll get a catalogue. For sure. <laughs> but, you know, we're going more and more digital, so I don't know how long it will be for a real catalogue. But there's a real tendency to try to do what we can, you know, to be more sustainable. So we definitely will have a catalogue, but it might soon be just a digital, digital. catalogue. We might have 2020 still yeah. going on, but, I mean, I'm hoping that 2020... Hey, limited could... edition shout-out. Yeah. <laughs> but we're hoping that there will be collector's item very yes, soon. Because yes. we're trying to all save a bit the planet. So, yes. I mean, the, trying not to print too much, you know, yeah. it's not a, a bad idea. Great. Well, thank you so much for such an inspiring episode. And I hope um, a young person out there who has a dream and who is inspired by doing purposeful work in a space that seems magnanimous listens to this episode and draws a level of inspiration and courage to make a step. Thanks, Toria. Thank you, Zizi. Thank you for listening to this episode of Third Culture Africans, the Lifestyle Podcast. We would love to hear from you. So please find us on Facebook or Instagram at Third Culture Africans and leave us a comment. A review goes a long way in getting our show noticed. So please leave us one if you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time.